Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, this episode of the Other People Podcast is brought to you by Rare Bird Books, publisher of the novel Dead Girls by award-winning author Abigail Tartelin. Emily St. John Mandel calls Abigail Tartelin, quote, a fearless writer, end quote. Dead Girls reads like a true crime book. Do you like true crime? If you like true crime, you're going to like Dead Girls. Go get it now wherever good books are sold. Dead Girls by Abigail Tartelin, available now from Rare Bird Books. Hello. Hey, how you doing? This is Brad Listy. This is the Other People Podcast. It's nice to be with you wherever you happen to be. I'm in Los Angeles, and I have a great show for you today. Adrienne Brodeur is my guest. She has a memoir out called Wild Game, My Mother, Her Lover, and Me. It is available from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It is one of the most critically acclaimed memoirs of the year, and it was the official October pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Adrian's episode is airing in November simply because her tour schedule had her in LA uh, just a little bit ago. So it's just a timing thing. I wanted to talk to her when she was here in town and I did. And that conversation is coming up in just a moment. It was delightful to meet her and her book is excellent. So I don't have much to say. I was, uh, I was complaining on Twitter as one does the other day about uh, this weird feeling I get when, uh, you know, somebody, <laughs> how do I put this? I went to a place of business near my house. It's like a store where I see the same guy. There's a guy that works there. He's there all the time. I've seen him dozens of times. I would say upwards of 50 times in my life. I have stood within five feet of this gentleman. And uh, a few days ago, I was there, and I happened to uh, talk to him, and he said to me, he said, oh, I've never seen you in here before. And I was like, wow, really? Like, I, I totally know who you are. <laughs> uh, but it just struck me. And I'm like, what is it? What is it? Because I feel like this happens to me in other contexts as well. And I've, I've, uh, I've talked about it a little bit, I think, on this show about being at a bar and like trying to get a drink and trying to get the bartender's attention and it's crowded and lots of people are trying to get a drink and are trying to get the bartender's attention. I'm the guy that the bartender just never sees. 
I think part of it is that I'm not really pushy. I'm not going to be throwing elbows. Maybe there's something meek about me. Maybe there's something sort of every man about me. Someone, you know, maybe something about me, either visually or personality-wise, just sort of blends in. I don't know what it is. Am I a ghost? So I guess like I'm just trying to navigate whether or not to be offended by this. Like, you know, is it rude that this this uh, gentleman hasn't even bothered to register me, despite the fact that I've stood in close proximity to him in his place of business? More than 50 times? Is that too much to ask? Am I crazy? My guest, again, is Adrian Brodeur. And uh, Wild Game is quite a book. You're going to hear all about it, so I won't try to paraphrase it. Uh, Let's just get to the conversation, and let's hear from Adrian herself. So uh, here she is, folks. This is Adrian Brodeur. It starts, sort of the framework of the book is that it starts with a very pivotal moment in my life, perhaps the most pivotal moment in my life, and um, that took place in 1980 when I was 14 years old, and we were on um, our family's home. We were in our family's home on Cape Cod uh, in Orleans on Nosset Bay, and we'd had guests for the weekend, so it was my mother and stepfather And the Southers had come, who were great old friends of my stepfather's. They'd come for the weekend. And I had gone to bed. It was a late night. I was up in my room asleep. And my mother, uh, sometime after midnight, I heard the door open. And I heard her come into my room. And she sat down on the bed beside me and tried to wake me up. And essentially, what she was there to tell me was that Ben Souther, my stepfather's best friend, had just kissed her. I did mention I was 14, right? <laughs> I mean, right? That's um, a, quite an age to get that kind of news. So it was. And what I didn't realize in that moment was that this was going to go on to become this just epic love affair. She fell madly in love with him, and they were they had an extramarital affair for years and years, like a dozen years. But what I did realize, even you know, in real time as I was lying there was that, you know, my life had changed. There'd been a before and after, and I kind of went to bed as a kid um, and as my mother's daughter. And I woke up, you know, fully immersed in this sort of very adult world. And I was Malabar's confidant and best friend. And, you know, everything changed. I got very, very swept up in sort of being a co-conspirator of this affair with her. So the name Malabar... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't make up a better name. <laughs> yeah, she's the only name I kept in the book, <laughs> other than my own, of course, my father. Um, Malabar got her name, and Malabar lives up to her name. My mother's this very glamorous, fabulous, you know, larger-than-life person. She was born in India, um, in Bombay, on Malabar Hill. So and that- that's where the name came from. But I often wonder, like... If she were Susie, <laughs> if right? she were Anne, would this really be this way? I, as a guy who's named Brad and has a lot of complicated feelings about the name, I wrestle with the like the destiny attached to a name or just like what you're saying. Like, right. I'm like, what can I really become with a name like Brad? <laughs> it's like a cultural punching bag. You know, I guess like maybe it's my, my mission on this planet to try to redeem it. But I feel like if I had some grand name, maybe you try to live up to your name. I don't know. I mean, I don't know, but I just, uh, you know, I just can't even imagine. And no one shortened it. I mean, 
I've obviously I've known my mother my whole life, and um, I apparently her father when she was young used to call her Mabby, but every friend her husband's it was Malabar. That's it. Yep, that's wow. it. Well, she really comes. Uh, she comes to life on the page. You know, you do a great job of rendering her and making the reader understand her charisma. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, it's palpable, you know, and it's, uh, there's a lot of complexity too, that I appreciate in your rendering of her because, uh, she's perpetrator, but she's also victim. And I think when I look at perpetrators of any kind, and, and we're all at some point in our lives, perpetrators. Exactly. Um, but there, it's always, it's always quite a soup. Um, like even in the most overt cases, I could point to any number of bad actors on the world stage or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's never just as simple as like, well, they're just bad. Right. I know. I know. And that was the most interesting part of trying to, of, of writing the book and trying to render her well. Um, and I'd read, um, Vivian Gornick's The Situation and the Story right before I really was diving into writing it as I was struggling with all of this. And in it, there's a line that says, in order for the drama to deepen, we must see the loneliness of the monster and the cunning of the innocent. And I remember just thinking, that's it. Like, that's what I need to do. And and I really, you know, I taped it to my screen and all the rest. Um, but it was actually so helpful in so many ways um, in terms of, you know, just developing a compassion and an, more empathy for my mother is sort of knowing her life story. And I feel, you know, whenever you actually really know someone's life story, there's a lot of room for forgiveness because it's, you know, her childhood makes mine look like a bed of roses, what she'd gone through by 14. What, what uh, had she gone through for people listening? Just so so her parents were married and divorced and married and divorced to each other twice. Um, this legacy, there was a legacy of deception that did not start with my mother. Um, her father had a secret family outside the marriage that my, so my mother discovered a half brother as a young woman. Her own mother followed a very similar trajectory of having a long affair with a married man until his spouse died. Um, but so after, you know, this pretty traumatic childhood with an alcoholic mother, and really, she was an only child raised alone by this alcoholic mother. Um, she had, I'd say, an unhappy marriage to my father. They lost their first child. She fell very, very in love with my stepfather. And in the weeks before their marriage, he had four strokes in five days and became, you know, paralyzed on one side. So there were, you know, there was just a lot um there was a lot there. And, I mean, and you're telling me, like everything you just said, it's like takes your breath away. Yeah. I like, mean, it, raised, it, raised by an alcoholic mother who basically uh, performed the behavior that she went on to get mm -hmm. embroiled in later. That alone <laughs> makes it make some sense. But to lose a child. To lose a child. Is the ultimate grief. Right. Um, and, you know, people have, I, think, I feel like people have really complex responses to grief in their lives. Uh, I'm always fascinated. Like some people, uh, like, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't want to put it in a, in a way that's, um, 
I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound too simple. You know, some people respond by going up and some people respond by going down is what I was going to say. But do you understand what I'm saying? No, I do. It's, it's like, um, it sets the framework and I don't think it's to be underestimated. Um, you know, you look at anybody who goes through the loss of a child every day afterwards is colored by it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I only knew my parents after this traumatic event in their life. So I don't know whether they went up or down in that way. Um, I do know that for both my brother and me, you know, the, the children who came after, I think it affected us in, in all sorts of ways that, you know, we're really figuring out. How, how I did, happened to have been born on my brother's birthday, the one who died, my oldest brother's birthday. And so there was sort of always this interesting sort of understanding of happiness and sadness on this day. And I think I think you can't be the child who follows a child who's died without sort of wondering, even like, would you be here had that child lived? Um, yeah. So it was a presence definitely a big presence in my life. But was it, it wasn't talked about a ton. It wasn't talked about, but it wasn't kept as a secret either. Um, you know, I remember not really knowing who he was when I was little, but there were photos of him and, and, you know, his teddy bear was around and those types of things. And so I think because when I would ask my parents, they would get so sad, of course, you know, that I would then ask grandparents. And I just got a lot of confusing information, of course, because everyone has their own spin on things. And, you know, my born again Christian grandmother had one idea of sin. And, you know, that was pretty confusing to me as a young child. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, it, it just took a long time to figure out. And, and, this, and everyone felt responsible in that way that, you know, I don't think you can lose a child without feeling some responsibility. And it was a bad accident. He choked. It was a bad accident. He, he was driving home in the car seat and yep. had food in his mouth. Yeah. He had hidden some meat in his cheek and, you know, it was right before the Heimlich maneuver was discovered. Ugh. And yeah, I mean, just the worst possible thing you can imagine. Wow. Hey, everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so the other thing, um, or one of the other main things that your book makes me think about is the weight of lies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it. it is... Uh, it has a huge, uh, it, it has a huge impact on our energy as human beings. Right. 
to maintain a lie, to participate in it, to carry the, the guilt, you know, that burden. I mean, that's what, that's what so much of your life has been about trying to untangle. Right. That's what you're doing in this book. It's exactly right. And I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, I think the hardest thing about lying and holding big secrets are on some level, it just, it, it prevents you from being known at all, right? So you can't actually have true intimacy with your friends or with your, you know, lovers or whoever, because you're kind of holding back this enormous part of yourself. Um, Yeah, it just, it was an incredible burden, but also because it was my childhood, it, it was normal. Like it was my, my normal, my, you know, we only have one, one childhood. And so in that way, we don't think, well, this is crazy. Um, you think, oh, this is what you're supposed to do. This is maybe what adults do. And, and it just, it didn't, it took me a long, it took, it, it was just a process of peeling back the onion over many, many years. I was just sort of realizing like, I got to stop this. This has to stop with me. This is not an okay way to walk through life. Well, if that's the, the only context you have as, I mean, if it happens to you when you're a kid, what do you have it to, com- to compare yeah, to? Nothing. I mean, cause that's what people often ask, like, you know, did you think of telling your mother no when she woke you up and asked for your help? And did you, you know, and the truth is, of course, like at my age and I have a 14 year old daughter right now, I'm like, yes, of course it was horrible. I didn't, I didn't understand it as a burden at the time. In fact, it was, it was kind of thrilling because um, it was hard to get my mother's attention. Uh, Suddenly, you know, the high beams of love were just like all over me and every child wants their parents' love. And my mother had been a really unhappy person. And suddenly she was just, you know, so joyful. Um, And that's something also that most children want to see, happy parents. Um, So yeah, I just, I went in and I mean, in the beginning, it just seemed like a wonderful thing. And I think it helped that it was my my stepfather who I loved, but it wasn't my own father where I think the sort of betrayal would have probably torn at me more. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah. And you didn't really get any kind of, um, what's the word, awakening until you go off to Hawaii. Like that was the first time, it feels like that in the book anyway, the first time someone had kind of peeled back the veil and said, Hey, wait a minute. This isn't, this isn't necessarily a normal situation. Exactly. I was telling this, um, guy I was dating. He was one of the first people I told sort of the whole story to. And, you know, he was, you know, kind of a petty drug dealer and like, you know, not exactly. You were on a gap year. I was on a gap year. Between high school and college. And, you know, he was a great, sweet guy. But so I'm telling him this story and he's the last person that I think is going to kind of judge me. And and he was like, my God, that's just insane. (laughs) And what, you know, no person has ever done anything more horrible and her husband's best friend. And I kept sort of kind of rewinding. No, 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 you don't understand. She really loves Charles, her, her husband, and they don't want to hurt anyone. And, and truthfully, they're doing the kind thing here because, you know, they could just divorce and leave these people in the dust, but they're standing by their vows and they're taking care of people and they're sacrificing themselves and they're so in love. And, and he just, you know, looked at me. I I mean, I, I can still see the look of just incredulity and, it was an eye opener. It was. I'm picturing him like weighing weed on like a scale, <laughs> telling you like, this is crazy. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Just about. <laughs> wow. Um, 
And then there was also some anger. It wasn't just like, wow, I'd never seen it that way. But I feel like there was also within you, because he was kind of uh, pointing the finger. You know, he was, he was uh, calling it out as being immoral. Definitely. And I, to this day, probably would still defend my mom. You know, like I, I just have that. I was so much a part of her life and I was so, um, you know, n- attached to her in a very boundaryless way. And so my knee jerk reaction is like, I can say my mother did this terrible thing. Right. But Brad, don't you say that? Yeah. <laughs> we might have to, you know, and it's, um, you know, I think that's the way we do feel about people we love. And obviously I'm kind of exaggerating. I mean, I, I really recognize um, that she made some terrible decisions as a parent. And, you know, my life's work is kind of not to repeat them in my own, with my own children. Um, but yeah, it's really, it's still hard for me when someone's like, you know, cause every reader you read with your own lens and it's the reader's right to interpretation, of course. Um, but some people are like, oh, she's such a survivor and she went for it and this. And then other people are just like, what hell on wheels? Like, I don't know how you survived. And, and, you know, obviously a lot worse. Um, but isn't it, a, it's a, it's a, to me, it's a little bit of everything. Of course. Yeah. You know, it's like all of the above. And, uh, I think from the perspective of, of your life and the perspective of anybody who's trying to live the best life they can, we all hopefully correct the mistakes or make an attempt to correct the mistakes that our parents make. Absolutely. And if there is a cycle of, you know, dysfunction or abuse or some darkness, you know, some dark human behavior, um, that's really powerful. It's hard to be the one who breaks the cycle. It it really is. And I think, you know, the story of all of our lives starts before we're born. I mean, that's the most interesting part of writing um, memoir. And and a part I didn't know is it's in fact, you know, sort of this heart expanding process because you're finding out what happened to your grandparents, to your parents, and why they are the people that they are. And, um, you know, it just, it's sort of what I said before. I mean, you, you develop a compassion for them, not, not to sort of say that their transgressions weren't significant. I mean, in some ways, you're underlining them in order to move on from them yourself. Yeah. And then what about your, your father in all of this? Because your parents were obviously divorced. Right. But what was it? What was your relationship with him like, uh, particularly during this period when uh, your mother and Ben were having the affair and you were going through adolescence? Right. I mean, my father and I have always had a nice relationship. They were divorced. Divorce was very different in the 70s. So, you know, we sort of saw him every other weekend. When my mom remarried, we moved to a different state. Um, And, you know, he was a busy guy, too. And, you know, I'm not saying he was checked out in any way, because I don't think he was. But it was also the secret I was keeping with my mother about something so you know, incredibly personal that he would never have been someone I could have told. And it's, you know, it's regrettable because probably he would have been able to help or, um, you know, at least sort of say, Malabar, this stuff stops now, you know, go about your business, but, you know, don't get, don't get her involved. Um, but it wasn't an option. I mean, I think he intuited things at various points along the way and, and helped me, but, um, yeah, I couldn't tell him. And he is a writer. Yeah, he was on the staff, right? He was a staff writer for The New Yorker for years. 
And like writing? Um, he's written a couple novels and sh- a short story collection, um, but he's sort of known as a nonfiction writer. He wrote all the pieces about um, the asbestos industry in the 70s. And um, Super he- funny, by the way. <laughs> yeah. He's a good old lefty conspiracy theory guy. Good. And then uh, some of the, I think the most striking passages in the book are when you describe your mother in the kitchen and you describe food. Like you grew up in a culinary house. It was, yes. I mean, it is one of the things that I didn't always appreciate as a child. Of course, mac and cheese would have been nice. But as an adult, I mean, we went from fabulous meal to fabulous meal. So my mother had, um, I mean, she was really an astonishing cook. She'd studied at Le Cordon Bleu and she'd worked um, when we lived in New York at the um, Time and Life Test Kitchen test kitchen for foods of the world. When she moved to, when we moved to Boston, she started a food column for the Boston Globe and she'd written cookbooks pretty much my whole life. And then the the title of the book Wild Game um comes from the fact that her lover Ben Souther was an avid recreational hunter and fisherman and and the two couples were friends. So in effort to kind of create reasons for the couples to be together, um, they decided to do this wild game cookbook. So Ben and his wife, Lily, would show up, you know, bearing some hunk of meat, <laughs> like venison or boar or... Something just bleeding. Just something bleeding. <laughs> you know, there was a hoof involved. You know, it was not sort of neatly packaged steaks. And my mother would just transform it into something extraordinary. And, you know, there was also plenty. These nights were very boozy. There was plenty of alcohol involved. Um, they had a favorite drink that they called the power pack, which was just an, an enormous dry Manhattan. There's something, there's something so like East coast waspy. (laughs) Yes. Like there's something cheevery, like, you know what what I'm saying? Totally. Like people used to booze and smoke back in those days. And I remember it from my childhood a little bit. Um, Nowadays, especially living in a place like LA, everybody's so health conscious. And yeah, no, I mean, it's really unthinkable, just the, the lifestyle. So I, I would, you know, depending on my age at the time, I would sort of return home from whatever excursions I had as a 14 or 15 or 16 year old. And they would be, you know, fairly soused and enjoying one of these decadent meals. And it might be, you know, five little game hens, each prepared slightly differently. So one is infused with cranberry and one with garlic and some sage leaves under the skin, whatever. And they'd be like, you know, Rennie, which was my nickname, you know, which one is best? And, you know, everyone was having a blast. I mean, that's the other thing. Both um, Ben and my mother's spouses were in poor health, um, but they were... It, it always seemed like everyone was having a great time. And then my job um, was to suggest that we go out for a walk. It was um, all incredibly innocent seeming because I was sort of a teenage chaperone. And my stepfather and Ben's wife would never want to come along. So um, in that way, I was able to give them some time alone because uh, they would go into a second property of my mom's and I would peel off and go down to the Bay Beach and they would visit. And that way, yeah. And you knew, and you're just sort of like, okay, so this is happening. I'm sort yeah. of a, I'm running interference. I, yeah. I mean, basically, yes. I'm amazed because this affair went on, what do you say, 12 years? Yes. It was discovered. The Actually, that's not quite correct. So it was discovered 
10 years into the affair, um, Lily, Ben's wife, found out. I'm I'm not sure how much I'm supposed to go into spoilers or not, but um, so she found out and then there was a hiatus that happened. And then ultimately they got together after both of their spouses had died. What amazes me is even, even a year to carry that, like to carry that secret and that level of um, what's the word? You know what I mean? Yeah, (laughs) I I, do. If if I transgress even slightly, like I feel like I said something that was maybe slightly insensitive to someone, like it'll weigh on me all week. I'll wind up emailing them. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm guilty. I feel guilty about feeling guilty. I, I completely understand what you're saying. And I don't know why my mother just wasn't built that way. And I don't know if that was the survivor mentality she had, because literally probably about seven or eight years ago, we were sitting on a bench in Cambridge and um, she'd said something unkind to someone in our family. And I was like, mom, do you, do you not feel badly when you do stuff like that? Because like, I can, I can feel badly for, you know, if I think someone might've misunderstood something I said and thought it was unkind. And she looked at me and she's like, "Hmm, no, really never. And I just thought, God, it must be, I mean, some part of me thought it must be nice. <laughs> I, yeah, I have that sort of envy too, like people who can just sort of process things and it isn't necessarily healthy emotionally right. to carry around this like big guilt burden or to like constantly be uh, incriminating oneself. I mean, it's good to have a conscience and it's good to recognize when you've done wrong, Right. but then you process it, you, you know, you make the improvements you need to make and you don't repeat the mistake and you move on with your life. Right. But it's easier said than done. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know if some part of it is a generational thing. I mean, my mother's 88 next week and um, I don't think they were as, you know, self-reflective. I mean, she had little doses of therapy at different times in her life, but, you know, probably in no way spent the time. I think our generation, younger generations do sort of figuring it all out. Well, and I also wonder too, if it's, if it has anything to do with class, um, your memoir is a personal journey. It's a family story, but embedded in there too, is that it's a story of class because you had a very unique experience, uh, of class as a child. Oh, definitely. You know, from your, uh, parents' marriage to your mother's remarriage, right? You jumped (laughs) like 12 steps on the the social ladder. You went from like living in an apartment in New York to like living in this, what, like 15,000 square foot or whatever. It was, it was crazy. Um, yeah, I mean, my parents were educated and had a nice life, but I mean, they were both, you know, my father was a writer and an artist and working at the New Yorker. Um, at the time, you know, I, I remember, I'm not going to remember the numbers, but I feel like rent was $72 a month and they might've made 80, you know what I mean? It was just such a different time. Um, but when my mother married Charles, we moved from an apartment where I shared a room with my brother, literally could have reached out and touched him, you know, at night if I needed to. Mom was right down the hall, all that, to a 17-bedroom, nine-bathroom, just palatial mansion in the suburbs of Boston. And, you know, that whole sort of we went from kind of an intellectual group of friends. I mean, I'm talking about my parents' friends to this very sort of, you know, Boston Brahmin social circles that were completely foreign to me. Um, and I was just sort of watching it. But it was also a little, I mean, more than a little scary to 
to live in a house where, you know, I don't know, it would have, it would have taken some time to get someone's attention if you needed it. You know, you had to find them. Well, it's like, it's, it's your life, but it's not, I can feel like you must, I, I can imagine how you must have felt sort of alien in that environment. Like you were a visitor. Yeah, I did. And it, actually even, you know, when sort of people would describe me as sort of a new England wasp, I was like, you know, no, I'm, oh, oh yes, I guess I am, you know, but it's taken a while to sort of understand that that is who I am. Well, by ac- but almost yeah. like by accident, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> these things have life's crazy, you know? Right. Um, so, but you grew up like Boston, there's this giant house and then out on Cape Cod. Yes. Cape Cod to me, Cape Cod is home. I mean, it is, um, despite all the crazy things that were going on, I just, it was the, the most stable part of my life. So, you know, born in New York, when parents divorced, there are different apartments. Um, my dad always had a little cabin in Newtown, Connecticut, where we would visit him. And then there was, you know, the various homes in Boston. But for every summer of my entire life, there's always been some, some place on the Cape where I spent summer. So, you know, there was a childhood home. And then there's the home described in the book that was you know, once my mother married Charles, um, that she, she bought this house and then sort of kept expanding it. And, um, is it still in your family? It is still, she lives there. So it's still in my family. And then, um, there's a little guest house, um, where I stay. So it's, you know, it's lovely. It's, it's great. Yeah. I've never been to Cape Cod. Oh my gosh. You will drive over the bridge and the brackish air and the seagulls. And you just, I mean, I'm like Pavlov's dog going over. I'm just you know, salivating and this is my happy place. But is it, can you spend the winter there? You can. A lot of people do. Um, my father lives there year round. Um, you know, I think it's a pretty lonely place in the winter. I mean, it's a very, it's like living in two entirely different places since I just moved from New York city to Cambridge and I love going down in on weekends and in the fall. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to being, having more of a year round presence there. It's so peaceful. Oh, that sounds good. So what, uh, what brought you from New York to Cambridge? Just wanted to get out of the city? Or? Uh, a lot of it was wanting to get out of the city, you know, some just life moments. My daughter was finishing up eighth grade, so she was going to have to leave her school anyway. And my husband and I kind of were like, you know, it's now or never. And we'd been sort of looking back at each other for 17 years, sort of saying, you know, you want to leave now, now, <laughs> now. And, and so we went for it. And I have to say, um, you know, moving's hell, as everyone knows, but it, there's something hugely optimistic about it, too. It's like I could so easily have seen just sort of staying in the New York grind forever, and I'm really happy we moved. I mean, it's been a huge adjustment for all of us, but, um, and, and part of it was also we have, between my husband and me, we have three parents who are quite elderly, and they're all on, on different parts of the Cape. So, you know, just wanted to be closer to, to family and be able to help out more. Got it. So to trace your story a little bit more, mm-hmm. um, you have this gap year and then you go to Columbia. Yes. And you're all the while participating in Mostly conversations. I mean, once I left home, it was mostly sort of a weekly conversation with my mother sort of figuring out where she was. But I, I was like an advisor. I mean, I was really, you know, <laughs> you were my, consulting. I was <laughs> my first consulting gig. Um, but, you know, our roles had really flipped. Like I was, I mean, I wasn't the mother, but I was sort of, I was the person that was giving more of the advice. 
um, you know, what do I do? I'm so, you know, she would, she would be so frustrated or so lonely, or, you know, she was always wanting to spend more time with Ben. And, um, and then also during college, um, you know, if, if, if the boyfriend in Hawaii was sort of the first ping uh, in my consciousness, the next one came when my stepfather died. When I was a sophomore and I was beyond brokenhearted. He was also the first sort of real person in my life I'd lost. I mean, I lost grandparents when I was young and didn't really, but this was, um, you know, someone I lived with and he'd always been incredibly kind and sweet to me. And I, you know, I was young enough that I don't think I understood sort of the guilt and shame that all turned into, you know, a first sort of mini depression. But I mean, it was all happening then and it was hard. That's when the depression sort of... Not the main one of the book, the big one. This was like a little precursor, um, you know, a nod to you're living a pretty crazy life that's not very healthy for you. Um and, but it doesn't, it makes, it makes a lot of sense to me that eventually there would be, uh, it would manifest in a mental health challenge. Yeah. It like was at, a, at some point the chickens come home to roost. Absolutely. And did, how, how did you understand it? Can you talk about like reckoning with that and making sense of where it came from? The, the, the bigger depression? Yeah. The, yeah. Um, like as it was happening, you know, like how did you, how did you process it? Well, you know, in the beginning, you don't even really know that it's happening. And I, I should say I am in no way a depression expert, very luckily, because I've, you know, that one main depression is really the only one I've had that I would, you know, sort of qualify in any kind of very serious um, way in my life. And, and it was a long time ago. But I it was like a dimming of everything. I mean, what I remember mostly was not being able to feel things fully, like not the ups, not the, I mean, I could feel the downs, but I mean, it was almost like I couldn't taste things. I couldn't, um, I couldn't make decisions. I just had this, this, it was like, like my brain was gummy or something. I don't know. And I, I, you know, did my best. I kept trying, you know, to do all the things you're supposed to do, go for runs and, you know, be around <laughs> people, be happy, uh, you know, but it, so it was probably a year or so before I even understood what had happened. Like I, you know, never having been through it before in a big way, I just didn't know what was going on. And then I did, you know, get help in a variety of ways. So uh, of course, therapy, which was really a lifesaver for me, but at the same time, the secret had come out, um, which was both, you know, a huge relief and also added a new layer of stress and trauma. But when the secret came out, I could also much more openly share my story with people. And I think that was enormous to suddenly realize I could count on these dear friends. They still loved me despite knowing sort of these fairly shameful things I had done. And then the third thing, which you know, really, really saved me was my father had also, I was living in San Diego at the time. My father in that kooky way had met someone in San Diego as well and moved out um, for half the year each year um, and ended up marrying um, this woman who became my stepmother. And she also owned the most beautiful independent bookstore in um, Del Mar. And Margot 
from the very first time I met her, started pressing novels and books of poetry and all sorts of just all sorts of great literature into my hand. And, you know, I had been educated and I certainly read, but I wasn't someone who devoured books. Like I hadn't been the kid with the, you know, flashlight under the blanket by any means. And I just became that person overnight. And, you know, I think back on it now, um, Margot died a few years ago. So I don't, I don't really know how conscious, how, how, conscious she was about all the selections she made for me. But I have a feeling she really knew I was in trouble. And she was picking these books that had, you know, a lot of young female protagonists sort of going through very complicated life moments and coming out the other side. And like, it was, can you give some books? Like some so of the-, the very first um, handful she gave me included Jim Harrison's Dalva, um, Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. And I never can remember which one came first, but she gave me Barbara Kingsolver, whether it was Animal Dreams or The Bean Trees. And I just remember tearing through them and kind of coming back like, more, more, (laughs) give me more, this is helping. Um, And it really really changed um, my life. I mean, in, in, in very... Matter of fact, ways I also ended up, you know, I'd I'd studied um, politics and public policy. I'd gotten a master's in that. I was not going to, you know, go down this literary path like my my parents had. And of course, I really pivoted at that point in my life and realized, you know, the the diminishing stack of political journals on my bedside table and this growing stack of literary ones. Um, so there was that, but it also almost more than therapy and friendship, or at least as much, it, it gave me hope. And it gave me a way to just imagine ways out and ways forward and think about things differently. I mean, reading is such a fundamentally empathetic act, right? You're in a different world. And it gives you a map. Yeah. Or at least, uh, or I don't know, there's different metaphors you can use. It's like, it can be like a life raft. Uh, (laughs) But I find I'm kind of the same way, like a book's I never read more than when, um, I'm in a lost place or a low place and I need it. Right. You know, poetry so good then too. Yeah. And it's just, but it's like, it's like, thank God I, I know that it's there. Right. You know, and I know that it, it's something that I can rely on. Right. Um, Absolutely. Because in its absence, like what else, what do you got? You got like TV, <laughs> got Game of Thrones. Has that ever? <laughs> it doesn't do this. Doesn't do the trick. Maybe music can help a little bit, you know. But books, uh, I think books are especially good in those instances. Um, also, you wound up marrying uh, the son of Ben Souther. I did. Which, like, again, from a writer from a writer's perspective, you, you can't make stuff up better than that. <laughs> no. So the year after Charles died. And and my mother went through a period of great mourning too, which, um, you know, she was profoundly lost. She had loved Charles greatly. And I think it might have been one of the moments of her life where she felt guilt before she repackaged, you know, <laughs> compartmentalized it. But she um, she planned a family getaway for all of us so that the Southers and our family would go to an island in the Bahamas together. And she, you know, was just going to show everyone a great time. And I had not met either of the Souther children. Um, and 
I went down there and I, you know, no one could have been more surprised, but maybe no one was surprised. I fell very in love with Ben Souther's son. And I was still in college. He's 10 years older and lived in San Diego, which is what actually got me to San Diego. Um, so we had a long distance relationship for a while, hilariously thought we were keeping it a secret from our parents who probably planned it from birth. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, we, I moved out to California and, and got married at, I mean, it seems now a shockingly young age. I know 23 isn't that shockingly young, but the fact is I wasn't, I'd never been marriage minded. I wasn't someone who like dreamt of crinoline and big dresses and veils or anything like that. And I, I don't mean, even I, know what crinoline is. <laughs> um, I think I learned it when I was getting a wedding dress then. Um, but yeah, and there was no parental. I mean, my father, as I said, is sort of an anti-establishment guy. I mean, no one was sort of, honey, find the right man and do this thing. I mean, this was not part of my growing up. And yet I just plowed into this um, relationship and this marriage. And he's lovely, lovely guy. I mean, like there was nothing. It, it, the big question is just what were all the things that were going on at that time? And, and why, you know, I mean, if I, if I do have a big question, I mean, I have many big questions from my mom, but, you know, maybe at some point saying, honey, you know, are you sure? Like, what is this thing? You know, this is, this is more than a little coincidental and so on. And we never had that conversation. Hmm. But like I was going to say with a, like with age and perspective and distance from it all and that relationship having ended, mm -hmm. I mean, do you have like a clean, clear way of conceiving of what was going on? like emotionally and psychologically. I mean, is it I guess clean it's, and clear? Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> right? Murky and muddy. I can give you. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, I, I don't doubt that I genuinely loved Jack. Like it wasn't, and there was no secret Malabar whispering, you know, I need you to date this guy. This is going to be our tie to Ben. You know, there was none of that, but I think it was part of, you know, my job was to please her. My job was to help her. And she was so delighted. Um, by the relationship at first. I mean, everyone was, Ben was thrilled, you know, he, you know, he adored me. And, you know, we had a very close relationship at that time. I mean, he also knew I was entirely in on the secret, which, again, was one of those things that until I really started writing the book, I'd, I'd never held him particularly culpable. And then I, you know, because it's my mom's job to protect me. But I thought, how is this man also, um, just finding it entirely okay to have me in this role. Yeah. Um, let alone, you know, my, my mom didn't keep the secret, you know, terribly close for long and lots of her friends knew and By no the way, one, a big, a big secret. It never stays close. No, it doesn't. They always get out. And I mean, I think that was the other thing is I think I, I just always assumed that everyone knew and by everyone, I mean, Lily and Charles and maybe not, Overtly, but I mean, it, the chemistry between Malabar and Ben was electric. Like they just like sizzled in a room. And so, and, and, and the truth is in hindsight, uh, you know, I don't think Lily knew when she found out, I think she was shocked and devastated. So if she had known it was on some very, you know, subconscious level, but, you know, she felt betrayed by this woman who she thought she was great friends with, you know, with this incredibly long marriage she'd had with um, Ben. 
but yeah. I'm stuck on sizzling in a room. I don't think I've ever sizzled in a room with anyone. <laughs> I bet you have. <laughs> I don't think so. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, I guess like the, the next phase of, um, y- you know, your life that I'd like to get into is the, the literary phase, which you started to talk about with, uh, Margot <clears throat> and the books. Yeah. Which was really the beginning of it. It was the beginning. It's where the obsession started. And so if I was at a time in my life that I was living um, in the wrong place with the wrong man doing the wrong career, I mean, it was then. And I think that also contributed to the depression I talked about earlier. And so as I was climbing out from that in, you know, sort of using every tool at my disposal, um, at some point along the way, I decided to move back to New York City. Um, we were going to long distance. It wasn't at that point. I, you know, we were trying to figure out what we wanted to do um, and try to enter the literary world. But instead of being, you know, twenty at the time, I was closer to thirty, and so I, you know, I had all the the gigs <laughs> a decade later. You know, like the unpaid readership at the basement of George Plimpton's house for the Paris Review, and. Um, you know, I worked as a fact checker for Travel Holiday Magazine, which is actually fact checking is great fun. And you're sort of like a mini expert on everything. It's great for cocktail parties. Um, and, you know, I, I and I really was trying to cobble together a living and, you know, had gone from this pretty nice uh, career that I'd had and salary. And, you know, Jack and I had a nice home on Pacific Beach to, you know, a studio apartment above a curry in a hurry. And, um, you know, what, what Murray Hill in New York, so 28th and Lexington. And, um, but right away, I, I felt happier. I knew I was doing the thing that I needed to be doing. It wasn't going quite as well as I expected. And at some point I, um, ran out of money and sublet my apartment and um, stayed out in my dad's cabin for a while and did a little writing. And it was there and one other place um, when I was an intern at the Paris Review, I'd heard just kind of like in the rumor mill that Francis Ford Coppola had been trying to do a short story magazine for years and that there had been these versions of it that he had he had sort of tested. And when I was in um, Newtown at my father's cabin, one of his New Yorker editors had called up looking for him and we ended up having a chat and he also said oh you know that francis ford coppola is doing this well of course i do not know francis ford coppola um but at the time i did something entirely out of character which is i wrote a cold letter and i mean so cheeky like hey you know (laughs) i'm nobody in the literary world but i really like short stories too and maybe i'm the person who could do this with you at some point in time and is that what you said uh, Hopefully more eloquently than that. Um, But I I don't have a copy of the letter. I don't know what was in it anymore. I sent it off. I went to the Radcliffe Publishing course that summer. Never heard back um, from my my letter to Francis. And um, moved back into my apartment where I was really prepared to take on, you know... This sort of meh literary job, I mean, not literary, an editing job, which was going to be at one of those, I can't remember whether it was Fodor's or Frommer's, but it was, you know, I would be able to travel and, you know, say this restaurant or that be, you know, it all sounded fine. It wasn't what I'd hoped, but I was needed to get a job job. And then one night I, um, again, at a crazy hour, like 11 or 12 at night, I got a phone call and um, 
on the other end was Francis Ford Coppola, <laughs> who was just like, yeah, I got your letter. And, um, you know, and we started talking about short stories. And so wait, 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 the phone <laughs> rings. It's like the phone mm, rings. almost midnight. It is. Do you believe that it's really him? Well, I didn't at first, but I thought, no, I was embarrassed that I'd done it. Like I didn't say to all my friends, hey, I wrote Francis. I think I'm going to get a gig <laughs> right, here. Right. So like I hadn't told anyone and very quickly. No, I, I mean, it was you know, I was confused for a nanosecond and then just kind of got into it. And we probably wrote and emailed for three months or so, sort of discussing what we loved about short fiction, what his vision was for the magazine. Um, being zoetrope. Being zoetrope all story. And um, then decided to go for it. And I probably met him two or three months after that. But I mean, nothing on my resume said this is the lady you need to hire to start a literary magazine. I mean, I just, it was, it was a wonderful um, opportunity that I leapt for that, uh, you know, I, I had no, no, no reason to think I could do. Hey, but I think there's a lesson in it. Yeah. You wrote the letter. Yeah. True. You had some chutzpah. No, I, I do. And I think, you know, if there's something, I feel like I've had a lot of good fortune in my career, but I do think, I do go for things, you know, I, I don't really, I, I don't have some career, elaborate career plan the way some people do after three years here, I will go oh, up yeah. this rung, you know, not at all. But when something piques my interest, I usually just really go after it. And I did with that. And running Zoetrope All Story was really one of my career highlights. I loved that magazine. It was a blast. Um, and an education. Huge learning curve. I mean, how does anyone know how to buy 20 tons of paper before you do it for the first time or figure out how to distribute a magazine, um, the designers? And, and Francis was on the other coast and was prolific emailer. I think the guy sleeps about two hours a night. Um, but so suddenly he would be like, hey, let's have a, a different guest designer every time. Maybe let's make the magazine look different every time. And I was like, oh, Great. yeah, that sounds easy. So how did you even know where to send the letter? Did you send it to his agent? Like, or did you have an address for him somehow? That's such a good question. Because that's like, I mean, like, that's just like a little logistical, but a yeah, huge... Yeah, no, um, I guess I, I don't honestly remember. I guess I must have gotten it from... Um, the editor at the New Yorker who told me about it, because that was the first time I sort of talked more seriously about wanting to throw my name into the ring, or maybe he made an, in yeah, I think he must have given me the address. Hmm. I don't know. Okay. So you do Zoetrope. Um, at what point does this book, does Wild Game begin to become a possibility? You know, I think... I've been writing around it for practically my whole life since since my mother woke me up. Um, I certainly have kept extensive journals. I, you know, while I was doing Zoetrope, I wasn't writing, but I was always thinking about the book and what I would write if I were able to write a book. Um, and I think I wrote in my 20s when I was living in California, some really, you know, angsty, bad, short fiction that was all sort of about fulfilling my mother's dream somehow. Um, my ex-husband, who went on to become my stepbrother, sent me <laughs> <laughs> one of my first stories that was not published or anything, but it was called The Pigeon Slayer. And it was just this, you know, 
horribly obvious uh, fictionalized version of, you know, my mother and Ben and their happy ending. Um, I was really actually grateful that he kept it all those years. Um, And then later in my 30s and 40s, I, you know, I think I dealt with it mostly in humor or, you know, just that was my, my fallback was to just be funny about it, you know, whether it's at a cocktail party or in writing or anything else. And I think that's usually a way to mask some pain. And when I, when I, when Zoetrope, uh, when I ended up leaving Zoetrope, I do remember I met my first, the woman who would become my first agent. And she sort of said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I've got this book idea for a mother memoir. And then I've also got this more chiclety something. And she was like, yeah, let's do the chiclet thing. And, you know, thank God she did that. Cause I do not think I, I didn't have the chops. I didn't have the depth. I didn't have the time and the distance from it to have done it justice. And I think frankly, having children was such, um, a game changer in terms of the urgency of writing this book and thinking about this book differently. So I feel very lucky. I kind of got the light book out of the way. I think a lot of people start with their, you know, the big book that's always been in them. And I, I didn't do that. Um, so what was the light book? The light book was called man camp. Um, <laughs> I haven't even thought about the light book in a long time, but it was, um, yeah, kind of send up of dating in New York at the time. And, um, I don't know, but it was, that too was an education. You know? Yeah. You wrote was. a book. It's, I it's wrote hard. a book. I wrote a book. I didn't do anything like what I'm doing now because of course I also, I gave birth to my first child, um, the same week that it published. So it, you know, it just kind of, it, it wasn't a big part of my professional life in the same way that this has been or my jobs have been. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, baby's going to kind of take over everything. <laughs> yeah. It's so matter. funny how you don't know that that's going to happen, uh, yeah, even though no. it does. We're not everyone. doing any book tour or, you yeah. know, whatever. I, like, I think I can probably do it. And they're like, <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> but having kids, you know, you said it changed everything, everything and certainly changed uh, the sense of urgency around the writing of wild game. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, obviously now you're the mom. Yeah. Well, and I think having children always requires revelation, right? I mean, you suddenly immediately have a different relationship with your past and your present and your future. I mean, you know, there is a human being who's ultimately dependent and counting on you. And there was a moment that I do write about in the book when, you know, literally hours after having given birth to my daughter where, um, and I was in Massachusetts at the time. So I was at Mass General and I came up in the elevator, you know, with my daughter in my arms and my husband beside me and the elevator doors, you know, swoosh open and there's my mom. And I had been so looking forward to seeing her. And, you know, this was her first grandchild. And it just seemed like this, you know, grandmother, mother, baby, beautiful, beautiful moment. And I opened my mouth to speak to her. And literally, it was like a thousand pounds landed on my chest. I I had a physical reaction of being unable to speak and breathe. And I started gasping for air and turning red. And, um, you know, this very efficient nurse sort of sent my mom to back to her waiting area and took me into another room. And she was just like, you know, uh, or I should say I was once I regained my breath, I was sort of like, what just happened? And, you know, the nurse kind of looked at me and she said, oh, maybe it was a panic attack. Maybe, you know, you had a lot of drugs. Uh, who knows? And I remember thinking, 
I'd never experienced anything like it. Like I just took note that something scared me so much. It was just one of those sort of almost outer body experiences of feeling like knowing you had to change. Like there was, there was just danger and not danger of my mother to my child, but just like all of us together, you know, this sort of explosion of past and present and what I wanted for my daughter and her future. That makes sense. Yeah. You think it was a panic attack? I mean, I've never had one before or since, but it sure felt scary if that's what one feels like. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I felt anxiety before, but I, that was, I, I couldn't speak. I couldn't breathe. I was like, <gasps> you know. That's that's crazy. It was crazy. And, I, you know, maybe it was just the drugs, but in any case, it opened or my eyes. Or the hormones too. Yeah. I mean, birth, <laughs> a lot going on. It's a major biological event. <laughs> I've witnessed it. Stuff is happening. <laughs> yeah. So there's, yeah, it's like all sorts of possibilities, but... You know, regardless, the the psychic weight of secrets and emotional yeah. trauma, it's in the body, yeah. And it finds its way, you know, it finds its way out, or it manifests uh, in unpredictable ways. But eventually, so it shows. True. It shows up, right? Have you read that book, "The Body Keeps the Score"? No. Okay, read that. <laughs> okay, I'm like, oh God, where's mine? I think it's in my lower back. Um, so uh, you know, now you're a mom. And you are trying to do some things different and some things the same. Right. You know, there's, there's great parts to your mom too. Are you a cook? I am a cook and both my children at 11 and 14 can whip off a creme brulee like no one's business. God. So <laughs> see, neither my wife nor I can cook and I... A blowtorch will change that. Uh, okay. <laughs> well, I have a friend. Uh, I just made lentil soup the other day for the first time in my life. And I was like, oh, well, this is easy. Yep. It is. It's so much easier than we think. And it's so, I mean, I think because I grew up with it, it's also relaxing for me. I think a lot of people feel stressed out, like, what What am I going to make for dinner and all these people and so on. And I actually, you know, after a hard day, like slamming that cleaver down on some things, it feels good. Yeah. And it's also a gift. Like I have a friend who is an outstanding cook mm -hmm. and he doesn't necessarily, just like your mom, doesn't necessarily need a cookbook. Right. He didn't go to Cordon Bleu. Yeah. But no, some people just have that ability to it's chemistry yeah and he yeah. like knows how to just like be like oh well these things will go together and yeah whenever they do a dinner party or you know have people over i'm always like i, I can't wait yeah because <laughs> you know it's going to be good yeah and everything's like hot when it's supposed to be hot and cold when it's supposed to be cold. high bar you've got there <laughs> yeah yeah it's incredible it's incredible that uh, talent i wish i had it um so you get to writing this book and i'm kind of uh, personally interested in, in the process that you went through because I'm trying to write like a memoir -y thing that's heavy, like any memoir, it's always yeah. loaded up with personal stuff. It is. Like, where did you have to get to, to when you felt like you were really in it and doing the work and what did the work look like? Right. Um, well, I think, you know, I had so, I had decades to process this. So, I mean, my sort of joking answer when people ask, how long did it take? It's either like two and a half years or my whole life. Um, but the actual, you know, I had a few, you know, if I'm just talking about sort of the physical process, I, I went on a writing retreat of residency, which I had never done in my life, which, you know, as a parent and a worker and everything else, it, you know, it takes a lot to figure that out and to work it out with your family and so on. But it was such a gift. I went to um, Hedgebrook on Whidbey Island, um, which is a woman's writing residency. And um, where's Whidbey Island? It's off of Seattle. Um, oh, okay. But really, just you know, 
seven little cottages, all sort of designed in every way for just exactly what you'd need for, you know, huge writing space. And you do have to leave your cabin to, you know, there's a sort of showering place and to get wood to, you know, keep your little furnace going. And it was, it was very physical. It was very well thought out. You would convene, there were just seven people, you would convene at night for these beautiful meals, um, talk about your work, but really no Wi-Fi, no, they were just, you were, you were in a world of your own and you were a writer for that, those weeks. And I was there for about three weeks and I really got a great toehold and it was, it was thrilling. And it was also just time rearranged itself. Um, that might be a lot about just not being on the internet and not having a schedule. But I remember, you know, waking up in the morning and working, 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 which I'd been doing for a while anyway. And then I would look up thinking like, oh my God, it must be noon. And I'd be like, oh, it's 7.30. And then I'd work, 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 work. And it just time slowed down. So it was an incredibly productive period. I remember coming home really just high from the experience and then sort of thinking like, oh, well, you know, maybe in another 20 years, I'll I'll find this kind of piece of time again, and I can write some more chapters. And a writer friend of mine was like, you know, she just called me out. And she's like, that's bullshit. And you need to you need to put your finger on this every day. You need to write every day. Who's this friend? <laughs> can she call me? <laughs> uh, well, here's the other thing. Zen Buddhist priest, no children, you know, well established enough writer that she didn't have, you know, any kind of big job. So like my thought bubble was oh, like, wait, I think I, um, why am I blanking? I think I've interviewed her. Ruth. Yeah. Ruth Ozeki. Yes. Okay. So yeah. Ruth Ozeki, I, oh, I didn't brain. want to out her on this, but Ruth Ozeki <laughs> was kind of like touch it every day, really. And it was the best writing advice I've ever had. Um, even though I was just like, grrr, when she said it, like, how can I touch it every day? You don't have, you know, I have children, I've got a job. But I, um, so if I normally woke up with my kids around 6.45, you know, I started waking up at 6, and then suddenly I woke up at 5.30, and then 5, and then 4.30. Whoa. I know, the 4 is what usually gets that reaction, uh -huh. thank you. <laughs> I've been there, though, I, you know, it's, and it's, I have it's to good say, time. It is magic time. I feel like I feel like it is the secret to everything because it's at this moment where I'm a pretty organized type A person. My to-do list isn't even on my mind. Like laundry, what it's just nowhere in sight. I still felt really closely connected to my subconscious. You know, you're just in that state and no one bothers you. Like no one wants or needs anything from you at 4.30 in the morning. And so that actually, you know, I was able to put out what I would say is a really strong draft of the book within a year. I mean, just doing that for several hours every day. Um, I'm not a fast writer, but it just doing it every day. And also when you do it every day, you're with it. So any conversation you have, any any experience, any reading you're doing, you're, it go, is going through the filter of that, that writing lens. And it is like everything had to do with wild game. I, do, I just don't think anything, it, I, I don't think anything was separate from it at that time of my life. And you were ready to write it. And I was ready to write it. And I'd, um, you know, I'd, I'd talk to my mother and we were at a point in our life in our relationship where, you know, she understood, which I just feel so grateful for my need to do it. I'm sure it was, you know, not the thing she most wished for, but she, um, 
she was great about it. And she gave me, she was a big chronicler of her own life. So she gave me access to lots of great, you know, all her cooking notes and her, um, she was a scrapbook keeper. And um, so a lot of good information there. And I um, wrote to my stepbrother slash ex-husband um, when I was going to Whidbey Island, actually, the subject line was three to five year warning. <laughs> you know, is <laughs> Just there anything... the email everybody's hoping to get. <laughs> no, but I said, look, you know, I really care about him. We have a nice relationship. Um, he's a great guy. And I said, you know, is there is there anything that's really off territory? I don't want to, you know, and I, you know, I said, but I really need to write about this relationship meaning with my mom. And he was like, no, you know, have at it. Um, hmm. So I did. And yeah. So did, yeah. Cause that's an, that's an interesting question. You know, people working in on memoir in particular, you know, you're always worried about who you're selling out. Right. You're worried about who you might hurt in the yes. process. Um, but to actually at least get through the drafting process right. in a way that feels authentic. Did you have to give yourself like permission to just go there and then you can worry about cutting later? Like, how did you handle that right. part of it? Well, you know, going back to Vivian Gornick and the situation in the story, I mean, there's sort of some fundamental rules, which she and other memoirists have laid out. Um, namely, you don't settle scores. You know, you have to be as hard on yourself as you are on anyone else. But also this memoir was so specifically focused on my mother and me. So I wasn't really trying to deal with my father other than to show where he was in my life or my brother or my ex-husband or anything like that. I mean, I really, and so in that way, um, I wasn't worried that I was going to, um, you know, go after anyone or hurt anyone, certainly in any intentional way. There are all the people who you might unintentionally hurt. And by that, I just mean, you know, like my stepsisters from my mother's second marriage to Charles, like, are they going to want this business dredged up again? You know, I didn't want to put anyone through anything. So I, I tried to be as, you know, just respectful and open. Um, I've, I've only had, you know, the people who've talked to me about it, and I'm sure some people have their other opinions that they've kept quiet, but, you know, I've gotten a lot of support, like, um, the Jack character, my ex-husband, was at my reading in San Diego a couple days ago. I'm going to see my stepsister from Charles in uh, Seattle in another few days. So everyone's been really great about it. Yeah, I think that's that's typically the case, right? When but it, it's it's very angsty. You will see. You will you will be up many nights worrying about things that aren't going to happen, and then you'll be a, a surprised by a few that do. Yeah, I mean, I, but I mean, I think it's like it's typically the case that people ultimately are like, you know what, if you're writing a book in good faith yeah. and it's a difficult traumatic experience and you need that, I think people understand yeah. that. And then the people who are always been mad at you are always going to be mad at you. Right. You mm. know, so it'll be just a new reason or something. Right. Now they have like something to hold on to. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's also, I think it's also appropriate, um, to, to sweat it like as the writer. Oh. I think it's important to like care about that stuff and yes. to think things through and to not be callous about it. Yeah, you know? I, absolutely. I, yeah. I mean, I woke up nights time and time again. And also, you know, whenever you talk to a writer, um, I feel like every one of them can tell you some line that they regretted having put in a book that was just a little mean way back when, and it's haunted them. And so I really, you know, I mean, I took that to heart. I did not want to to have my littlest self shown anywhere. Yeah. 
you know, oh boy, the temptation to settle scores is, oh. can be strong in people, <laughs> but it never feels good. It, it's like a sugar high. You yeah. know, it feels good the moment that it's happening. And then afterwards you just okay, feel crummy. Cool. Right. So keep that stuff in your head and not on the page. Yeah. Find a way to be like a little bit kinder or bigger, bigger, you know? Yeah. Um, so then what about the sales process? Because you spend all this time on this book, you have a history in New York city. You have, I'm sure, you know, a lot of people in publishing right. at that point through your work at Zoetrope. Um, you published another book, right? but you finished this book. You obviously want to see it published and published well, right? as anyone does who labors on a, on a right. book. Um, you have an, a, a new agent at this point? I will, you know, when, when I was writing the book, I didn't have an agent or, and to be totally honest, and I'm, I'm not sort of trying to sound coy at all. I had no idea that this book would connect as powerfully as it seems to have with readers. I mean, I thought I was writing a, a very singular, odd story about a really unusual mother-daughter relationship. And I thought I'd done a good job. I mean, I thought I, I felt proud of the writing and I I, I felt good about it. Um, but it wasn't like I thought, you know, this is, this is going to be... One of know, the biggest sales yeah, of this the is, year. <laughs> this is going to be huge. Um, so I gave it to Brittany Bloom, who's my now my agent, and she loved it right away. And we worked incredibly hard on it. She, you know, I'd written a full draft, but she wanted to sell it as a proposal. So I spent the, a lot of time polishing, really tightly polishing the first sort of third of it and can outlining. I, can I stop you? Yeah. You had a full draft. I had a full rough draft, yes. Okay, but she wanted to sell it as a proposal. She said that, yeah, that her, and I asked several other memoirists, like um, I think Tova Mervis and some other people I knew, either asking them directly or their editors. There seems to be some appeal to buying, you know, just leaving someone, I guess, wanting a little bit, but also, you know, the editor could have some more significant input. And the truth is, it did change a lot from the draft to the final, the final version. Um, but yeah, so we, we sold it. Um, I think there was probably 100 pages of polished prose, and then an outline um, of the final chapters. And, and truthfully, I didn't know how the book was going to end. Like I hadn't quite figured out the ending. So there was that last like, and then we'll wrap things up. <laughs> <laughs> details, Somehow. details. Um, but, and I, you're right. I, I had experience in the New York publishing world, but I mean, it is such a confusing and Byzantine place that, you know, I, I don't feel anyone is an expert at it. I mean, everyone is kind of like, well, how interesting that worked. I mean, right. you know, you've, you've interviewed enough people that. <laughs> That's like, yeah. I mean, the best I can tell you is that, uh. I mean, in the sales process, you just have to have believers, right? And they right. have to believe strongly, right? And you, especially if there's like some sort of consensus at a house. But then, in terms of a book in the marketplace um, having an impact on readers, right? No, but I love the question. Some people ask, you know, so did you try to, you know, sensationalize it for sales and make it more this or that? And I was like, I don't have the ability to know what would sell big or not. You know, I mean, even as I'd been an acquiring editor. I, you just, you don't know. And, um, you know, I think the book's pretty literary. Apparently it's got, um, got more commercial potential than I understood, but I, I didn't write it as, you know, like, for instance, as I wrote my first book, which was more intended to have commercial appeal and didn't. <laughs> well, maybe that's the lesson, right? Or that's the a lesson, yeah. you know, because, um, uh, you know, the personal is universal. 
Right. You can't set out to try to make some grand universal yes. statement. That to me and, seems like a lost cause. Right. But there you are working on what you feel is this very small inner story that has all this resonance to other people. Wow. One of the things that uh, struck, you know, struck me about it and reading it is that it's very much, uh, a female centric story. It's yes. a relation. I mean, it's obviously you're the protagonist of the book. Um, and Malabar is this larger than life character, but I see, it's not that there's not a lot of mother memoirs that have right. been written, but I see a lot of like female friendship books. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of like Elena Ferrante's books. Mm -hmm. Um, that maybe, maybe it's just what's been in the culture lately. Right. But I was like, wow, this is, this is a you know, a new, like a new angle or not necessarily a new angle, but it's a different angle on that. And there's, there's this really rich, complex, powerful, complicated, loving, difficult, you know, like, well, I think that's the thing that obviously, you know, everyone, most everyone has a mother, um, you know, and it is such a profound relationship. Um, and I'm sure mother son just as much, but I mean, it's just, it's, it's very powerful. The, the, the power we have as parents and, um, and the love that we feel for our parents and our children. And I think it was just much more relatable than I understood. I think a lot of people, you know, a, a few people have perfectly charmed relationships with their parents, but I think a lot of, a lot of people don't. I mean, a lot of people feel great love and great anger and, you know, great turmoil around it. Yeah. I mean, it's always, no matter what, even when it's good, it's complicated. Yeah. Relationships are complicated. <laughs> aren't they? Yeah, aren't they? I mean, come on. <laughs> so this book goes to your agent or goes, you know, goes out on proposal mm -hmm. and then just like, you know, briefly, like what happens? It was honestly, it was like the, the fairy tale version. So I think it was sent out on a Friday afternoon and right away, like within hours, um, someone got back to her um, and wanted to preempt. And she, my agent, um, you know, I think sort of dodged that over the weekend just to sort of see what else was going on. And she told me the, <laughs> the um, you know, the, the preempt on Monday. And I was like, okay, our work is done. Like, take this place. Yes, good. Go. Yes, good. Go. <laughs> right. And she was like, yeah, not so fast. I think there's a lot of interest. And I'm like, you know, Bratney. <laughs> this to me is, you know, life altering. I, you know, I work in nonprofit, like take this, please accept this offer now. And she, you know, pushed back and pushed back. And I, even though I'd been in publishing, I was like, wait a second, just explain again. Like we turn the, down this offer and it goes away. It's not like you start there ever again. <laughs> and it does. And, um, and she really, pushed and pushed me to do that. My husband, who's much more of a risk taker than I am, sort of said, yeah, you know, do what she says. And I'm thinking, y'all are crazy. <laughs> um, and yet I did it. And um, I met with 14 editors wow. over the next few days. And then, of course, on the day of the auction, um, you know, the first three things that came in were so staggeringly below what that preempt was. I was like, you deserve this. You stupid person, you greedy person, you deserve this. Like, who, who do you think you are turning down? So, and then of course it all, you know, the other offers were Higher. fantastic and it went really well. Wow. 
And so, and then there's a movie, is there a movie or TV deal? There is a movie deal. And is that, ha- is it like happening, happening? You know, when is a movie deal ever happening, yeah. happening? I have, I love the writer director who's Kelly Freeman Craig, um, because this was probably the scariest part of it for me. In fact, in the beginning, I told Brittany, my agent, I, I did not want to make a movie deal until I'd entirely finished the book and so on. And so she sort of turned down these offers and then she came back and she was like, you know, she's always talking sense into me. She's like, Adrian, you know, there might not be the same buzz about this in a year um, when the book is done. And so I, I took a few calls and they told me about this woman and I got on the phone with Kelly Freeman Craig and she just so got it. She got the nuance I was after. She really understood the relationship, but still it's such a huge leap of faith, of course, um, because you don't, you know, no matter what they tell you, you do not have any kind of creative control. And my joke with my husband for the last year before I saw the script is like, I could be a pole dancer in this movie. Like I, you know, all these people that I love in my family who I really care about how they're portrayed, but by the way, I could be naked in the whole movie. Like I, I don't who know. Knows? And so when, <laughs> when we finally, when I finally read the script, I mean, and, and the job of the screenwriter seems so complicated and amazing to me, but Kelly basically had to compress, you know, the book probably went from 14 to my late 40s. So she had to compress both time and geography and yet keep the emotional truth of the story, which she, in, at least in the version I did, seemed to have done beautifully. And weirdly, I was so happy by the changes because it made it a little bit less of, you know, if it's actually trying to follow the beat of your life entirely, it's it's harder, or at least was for me. I mean, I really fully want her to do her job, which she's very good at, and I know nothing about. Um, but no, I, I liked it a lot. And I, um, you know, I have high hopes, but you know, the, you living here know the fail rate of these things more I mean, than just, they kind of come and they go, they, you think it's going to happen and then it dematerializes. Yeah. I mean, and... I've seen that a million times. So, mm. um, I but hope it does. Who's going to play you. That's the thing I would be worried about. Well, what's, <laughs> what's so funny is you're like, you're the first person who's asked who's going to play me. Like the only person, this is like so hilarious about I've written a memoir and the only character that's everyone's fascinated by is Malabar. So it's also much more who's going to play Malabar that seems to be on people's mind. And by the way, that's a great part. <laughs> Malabar is a good part. Malabar is a good part, but she will be, um, the person who plays her will be younger than I am today. Right. Cause it's, you know, probably everyone goes down 10 years anyway. She was in her late forties when this started. So we're going to, you know, whoever the actress will be. And then I will be someone who can play someone between 14 and 20 something early twenties. So, um, I'm happy to say, well, a, I don't, I wouldn't begin to know those actresses either for me or for my mother. I mean, I feel like I know the actresses of movies. I saw mostly when I was a lot younger, um, but you know, I would no sooner suggest who should play me to like, I'm working with this genius of a director. She did the edge of 17 and, um, it'd be like me telling the electrician how to rewire a lamp. Like, uh, no, yeah, just pick somebody good. That's pick all. Pick someone great. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> right. Right. And so, uh, last thing you work in like, what is it called? Aspen words? Aspen words. I work for this wonderful nonprofit that is part of the Aspen Institute. 
And what is the Aspen Institute? I, every it's like every summer, there's like because I used to live in Colorado. I went to Boulder for oh, school. Okay, I mean the Aspen Institute has been described in a variety of ways, from like a think tank to all sorts of things. It is um, a leader, a leadership based, mission driven nonprofit that has its fingers in all sorts of pots. So there's there are many different programs. Um, you know. Uh, a business and society. Um, it's a lot about leadership and ethics and, um, and Aspen words is their literary program. Um, and we do, we have a really wonderful, uh, writing workshop in the summer, sort of literary conference. And then in the winter we bring in, you know, sort of the literary luminaries of the year to give author talks. So we do that for five or six weeks. We also just a couple years ago started a, really wonderful literary prize for a work of fiction that shines a spot on a social issue. So Mohsen Hamid with Exit West won the first year and last year, Tiari Jones for An American Marriage. Um, but it's, um, it's really, it's wonder. I've never been a nonprofit before and I have loved doing it. It, it reminded me a bit, it was more sort of more zoetrope than when I worked in book publishing. So it just feels like a win-win in the same way that when I did zoetrope, you know, no one was complaining about their sales or something like you made a brand once someone was in it, they were delighted to be there. That was sort of the end of the story. And in book publishing, of course, you have to like, conceive of a way for each and every book to work. They often don't. It's very hard. And then with nonprofit, like people, all the writers want to come there. The people I mean, who right. are there are so appreciative of these brilliant writers and thinkers who are coming to talk to them. So it's been, it's been a really great experience. And do you spend weeks in Aspen every summer? Or? I go out probably six times a year for events and board meetings. And the longest period I spend is in the summer for Aspen Summer Words, which is the big literary conference. Um, but, you know, I... Most of the trips are sort of five or six days of intensive work in the summer. I'm there for a couple of weeks, but I get to bring my family and stuff. I mean, so it's the worst places nice. to hang out for a couple of weeks in Aspen. It's really nice. Wow. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you. Congrat, And I'm glad we got to shine a light on your book in the uh, book club. And uh, I know how hard it is to write any book, but particularly, I think, a book where you have to delve into yourself and your family. Yeah. I have like a, there's a special place in my heart for people who are able to do books like that as well as you've done yours. So congratulations. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Okay, guys, there you go. That is Adrienne Brodeur. Her memoir is called Wild Game, My Mother, Her Lover, and Me. It is available from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It is one of the most critically acclaimed memoirs of 2019. You can get your copy uh, wherever books are sold. Wild Game, the official October pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Go get it. You can find Adrienne Brodeur online at adrianbrodeur.com. You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Adrienne Brodeur. She's on Instagram. She's on Facebook. Track it down. Go get the book, Wild Game. Thanks to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music there at the top of the interview. If you would like to write to me, the address, uh, the email address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what is on your mind. If you would like to support this program, if you listen regularly, if you enjoy the program and you would like to support it, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. 
You can also uh, review the show over at iTunes. Rate and review the show over at iTunes. Take a couple of minutes to do that. It helps the cause. Friendly reminder that all episodes of the Other People podcast are available for free. They are all offered freely. More than 600 episodes all available to you for free. Likewise, there is an official app for this podcast, the Other People with Brad Listy app, available wherever you get your apps. It's free. Everything's free. Coming up next time on this uh, program, I have uh, Leland uh, Leland Chuck. We had a uh, really interesting conversation. He's an interesting guy. He's been through a lot to say the least, and uh, just had a really good time meeting him. I think you're going to like it, the conversation that we had. So stay tuned for Leland Chuck next time on the Other People Podcast. Otherwise, I don't know. I hope you're doing well. The holidays are approaching. Daylight savings is over. Just like hang in there. Bear down. <laughs>